Hey there, Hoofbeats listeners. John Huang here with Cindy Fang. Hope that if you're listening to this in the midst of everything that's been happening, it's a good sign. Certainly feels good to be working on Hoofbeats again, though uh, we are impossibly behind on episodes. But Cindy and I will keep trying to work on it. In the meantime, we have something a bit different for you today. One of our colleagues, Dr. David Kotowitz, puts together historical CPCs, case discussions about famous people who had mysterious illnesses or deaths. If you've been listening, uh, you may recall David as our discussant from a past episode, the PE's 3, as it were. So it only seemed fair when David offered to flip the tables and pitch a case challenge of his own that we take him up on the offer. So just to be clear, we are not the discussants. No, of course not. We commentate, other people perform. That's how it works on Hoofbeats. Mm-hmm. What happened is, Zhang and I watched David challenge two senior faculties here with a historical mystery case presented in five eloquats of information. And we're happy to bring this challenge to you today. See if you can replicate the historical consensus on this case, and hope you enjoy listening in as much as we did. Just a little warning, uh, we recorded this as a real-time interview, and as our discussants got excited talking about the case, they started bumping into the microphones and thwacking fists on the tables, so apologies in advance for the sound quality. John and Cindy, thank you for having me. On our normal Hoofbeats episodes, we dissect the clinical reasoning of a complicated case with an expert discussant. Today, we're going to slightly deviate from that blueprint. In this episode, we hope to analyze an expert discussant's clinical reasoning of a historical figure's medical dilemma. We hope to add teaching points about the patient and how medicine was practiced back in the olden days. Our expert clinical discussant is Dr. Verdi Shea. Dr. Shea is an assistant professor of internal medicine at NYU. Dr. Shea has a Master's of Health Professions education from Maastricht University. She's also a Farber teaching scholar, the medical director of inpatient medicine units at Bellevue Hospital, and a fellow of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. In addition to all of that, she's a mentor of mine and an authority on clinical reasoning. Dr. Verity Shea, welcome to the program. That's a tough act to follow. <laughs> in addition to our expert clinical discussant, we also have an expert historical discussant. I'm really excited to welcome Dr. David Oshinsky. Dr. Oshinsky is director of the Division of Medical Humanities. He's also a professor in the Department of History at NYU. Dr. Oshinsky obtained his PhD from Brandeis. He won the Pulitzer Prize in History for his 2005 book, Polio, an American Story. His most recent book, Bellevue, Three Centuries of Medicine and Mayhem at America's Most Storied Hospital, was published in 2016. We are really excited to have him on the show to give us historical tidbits throughout the case presentation. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Great. So let's get started with the case. A 40-year-old man arrived at the Washington College Hospital in Baltimore on Wednesday, October 3, 1849. He was delirious and could not provide a thorough history. He was found disoriented outside of Ryan's Fourth Ward Poles in the heart of Baltimore and brought to the hospital by his friend, Dr. Snodgrass. He wore a stained, faded, old bombazine coat, pantaloons of a similar character, a pair of worn-out shoes run down at the heels, and an old straw hat. The clothes had a telltale shabby appearance. Six days prior to his admission to the hospital, the patient had a considerable fever. Despite feeling ill, the patient left his home in Richmond, Virginia, to visit and pick up his mother-in-law in New York to bring her back for his wedding. He never made it to New York. Instead, per his doctor in Baltimore, the patient was seized by two roughs, dragged into one of the many sinks of iniquity or gambling hells which lined the Baltimore Wharf, drugged, robbed, and stripped of every vestige of clothing he had on before, in effect, having been left to die. 
Dr. Shea, any initial thoughts on our case so far? What I'm hearing so far is a male on the younger side, certainly some exposures in terms of different places he's been and potential risk factors. And we're hearing one of the primary symptoms of delirium and fever. And so, of course, infections come into mind and then the different areas that he's traveled in the week or so before this illness has transpired. Some historical questions are, I don't know what a Ryan's Fourth Ward polls are and what that exposure is. And also the description of his clothing, is that related to the work he does and other exposure history? So those are some historical questions I will have for uh, Dr. Shinsky that will frame terms of exposure and risk, particularly if this ends up being an infection or other cause of his symptoms. The other thing, too, is, you know, he this this whole seized by two roughs. I mean, it sounds like he was beaten up in an alleyway, as is, is I think what all that is saying. But was he having any odd behavior that led to that? Or was it just this was a dangerous time in a dangerous area and he just got mugged? And, you know, certainly I don't know if there's any specific significance of this date or we're just orienting ourselves specifically in history of to consider other epidemics that were going on in that period of time, which is knowledge I do not have at the tip of my head, which would be other historical information I would ask, uh, ask of Dr. Shinsky. Those are some of the initial thoughts that are running through my head with this initial information. Great. Dr. Oshinsky, what do you think? Well, uh, thank you for uh, setting that up so well. Ryan's fourth word, polls, means the following. The founders had never intended to have a secret ballot. Secret ballots only come in in the United States in the 1880s. The belief was that you would literally line up at a polling place, you would give your vote verbally or say it to someone who would write it down. What would happen is, in certainly in the bigger cities where there are a lot of immigrants, Baltimore being one, Boston, Philadelphia, New York City, you had a process known as cooping. And what cooping was, was that gangs of toughs working for various candidates would actually kidnap people. They would get them incredibly drunk. They would beat them. And then on polling day, these people would be brought to the polls and sort of supervised by these toughs to give their vote to a certain candidate. And what would happen is that they would often go to multiple polling places. And the way they would do that would be by changing their clothing. So when you look at the clothing here, which is kind of crazy looking clothing, it is very, very possible that the subject having been beaten, either drugged or, or, or really put in an alcoholic stupor, was forced to change clothes many times. And when finally he had voted numerous times, he was simply left on the street in front of those polls. My only other question is when you mentioned both drugged and alcoholic stupor, when you say drug, because certainly you hear delirium, fever, obviously yeah. could be both intoxication and withdrawal right. symptoms. Were there right. specific agents that, uh, that were typically used to drug uh, these people? They, they, no, they were not specific. I, I would say they were not specific agents, but uh, morphine was around and was used quite liberally at this time. As far as hallucinogens, there were a few, but it would seem to me that in this particular case, really, we're talking about alcohol. Great. So with that, let's move to our second aliquot. So the patient's past medical history was notable for recurrent bouts of significant alcohol use. To discuss that a little bit more, the patient was once arrested, as he describes, for more than 10 days, I was totally deranged, although I was not drinking one drop. All was hallucination arising from an attack. After the death of his first wife and some intense drinking, the patient collapsed. Dr. Valentin Mott diagnosed brain fever brought on by extreme suffering of the mind and body. 
diagnoses of nervous depression and mania of persecution were in his theoretical chart. He also had one suicide attempt by ingesting laudanum. Cholera in 1849 in Philadelphia is something that he had, which was earlier in the year of his presentation, uh, while he was in jail. He wrote to a loved one about this experience, I have been so ill, have had the cholera or spasms quite as bad, and can now hardly hold the pen. He was treated extensively with calomel, which is purgative derived from mercury. He claimed to have significant side effects from this medicine. His family history is notable for a mother who died of tuberculosis, a father, brother, and paternal cousin who died of alcoholism. Social history was notable for being a sergeant major in the United States Army. He was court-martialed and forced to leave West Point. The charges against him were gross neglect of duty and disobedience of orders. So, Dr. Shea, any, any further thoughts after that bundle of information? Certainly. You know, a lot of this brings up and what I'm thinking a lot about now is what is the time course of this illness? You know, certainly with the first part of the history, it's seeming more like an acute or subacute, you know, delirium and, and, and maybe fever. With this additional history, you know, how this fits in. And again, is this an acute exacerbation of more of a chronic disease process? Certainly alcohol is at play here. And it sounds like the first description, this gentleman maybe just had DTs. But some of these other things of having some psychiatric symptoms and the mania and his being, I'm not sure when this happened and how long ago, but the discharge from the, from the army, the gross neglect of duty and disobedience of orders brings to mind maybe some cognitive dysfunction and again, some maybe neuropsychiatric symptoms that make me question the chronicity of this illness. Certainly syphilis was pretty predominant at this time period without treatment. Whenever I think of like, I mean, whether this was in the 1840s or now a young patient and neuropsychiatric symptoms, I feel like Wilson's is always one of those can't miss diagnoses that comes to mind for me. Certainly this all could be related to his alcohol. He obviously has a very strong alcohol history and now maybe his acute presentation is related to the acute withdrawal syndrome. Whether he's got now, you know, Korsakoff or now acute Wernicke's or just some cognitive dysfunction from his chronic alcohol use are some of the things that are, that are coming to mind now. Dr. Oshinsky, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about cholera and, and everything that was going on with that in the 1840s and 1850s, sure. but also uh, Valentin Mott. Valentine Mott was seen as the father of vascular surgery. He was the person, if you had to have an amputation at the hip, this was the guy you wanted. What is interesting about Valentine Mott is that he was extraordinarily wealthy, lived at one Gramercy Park um, in Manhattan, which is still one of the great townhouses you will ever see in this particular area. And what Mott did, like many physicians at this time, is he had a rich clientele, and then he believed it was his Christian duty to treat others. And this person was clearly an other at this time, which means that this person was in New York City for a considerable amount of time. So in other words, it's sort of Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York. You can see the patterns like an Eastern city pattern with this particular person. As for diseases at this time, um, David, you asked about cholera. Cholera is a relatively recent disease, and New York City has a number of major cholera outbreaks, one in 1831, one in 1849, that kill thousands and thousands of people, and many of the wealthy who can get out actually flee the country. One of the consequences of cholera at this time, because we know it generally comes from bad water, contaminated water, is that the entire New York City 
water system coming from the Croton Reservoir down to Manhattan really begins as a result of cholera, which is extraordinary. New York City had just had shallow wells. And when you talk about Canal Street, Canal Street was a street where waste flowed from that canal into both the Hudson and the East Rivers. The one other thing I would say about cholera is we know today that if we have a cholera patient, we rehydrate, perhaps use antibiotics. And if that happens and we get it in time, it's not a big deal. Cholera was a very fatal disease at that time. You could be fine in the morning and dead by evening. And one of the problems is that the physicians who dealt with cholera did exactly what you wouldn't want them to do. Bleeding and purging was what mainly was done to patients to put the four humors into balance. So what you would have with someone like this patient was when that patient had cholera, rather than knowing about issues of rehydration, he was purged and calomel was one of the leading purging agents of this time. So when we talk about that, you are talking about agony for the patients who are being dealt by physicians and who have cholera. And Bellevue Hospital was, was one of the centers. And, and it, when we're talking about calomel, we're really, we're talking about mercury. So it potentially, and long-term effects of, of mercury include neuropathy, tachycardia, salivation, hypertension, correct. and neuropsychiatric symptoms as well. David, if I could just say one more thing. I just Absolutely. I want to quote, here is the average calendar day for a physician in New York City in the late 18th century. Patient one, bleeding, bleeding twice. Patient two, a visit and calomel. Patient three, sewing up ye boy's lip with sundry dressings and cure of it. Patient four, rising in the night, a visit and a dose of calomel. Patient five, mercurous wash, calomel. Patient six, purge for child, bleeding and puke. Patient seven, drawing a tooth. Patient eight, draining a tooth. So calomel is literally in five of these eight. It sounds like any ED physician's regular day, just taking care of this <laughs> I, I also learned a lot. I want to live at one Gramercy Park, and I never want to go to Canal Street again. That, that's what I'm learning so far. The case continues. So the patient was admitted to the hospital. He refused liquids. An account of his hospitalization, written 30 years after the fact, states that when the patient was given water, he had difficulty swallowing it. He appeared ravenous and delirious. His skin was pale and his body was drenched with perspiration. For his doctor's notes, he did not smell of alcohol. He had dilating and contracting pupils with a pulse that alternated between rapid and slow. All right, so now we're actually, you know, getting some, I guess, a little bit more sort of concrete physical exam findings. And, and some of the, the biggest features here is either he has a hydrophobia or actual dysphagia or both. And then also hearing some autonomic dysfunction of this perspiration, his pupils dilating and contracting, and then the, his alternating pulses all sort of bring to mind that there's some autonomic dysfunction here. And so kind of just piecing together what we've heard so far and just really then taking a step back and rethinking about the differentials. I guess in our day and age, a younger man at that time, maybe was a 40-year-old, maybe was an older man, but a 40-year-old male who has significant alcohol history. And certainly a chronic suggestive history of potentially some neuropsychiatric symptoms coming in what we know with acute onset or, or acute to subacute delirium and fever with various different sort of exposures and recent history of cholera and calomel treatment. 
And and so again, I'm still struggling a little bit with the time course of this illness. And I think the way to frame the problem is to have one differential for if this was truly just more this one week acute syndrome versus this is all part of one more chronic disease process and a progression or deterioration or acute exacerbation of his chronic disease process. And I think you just have to approach it both ways. That's obviously going to bring you in two different directions. Certainly, if this is more of an acute and this is, you know, all that past history is true, true, unrelated. When you hear hydrophobia and dysphagia and automatic function, like the fast thinking, you know, rabies come to mind. Certainly, he, I'm sure was in areas where he could have been exposed. I mean, we're not hearing about a bite, but, you know, again, we obviously, I'm sure, don't have the most complete and thorough skin exam and physical history that we're, we're going to get. In terms of more chronic disease processes, I mean, we already talked about certainly with the psychiatric and neuro, neurocognitive and psychiatric, particularly in this, this period of time, syphilis. Although these neurologic symptoms we're hearing from the physical exam aren't really fitting as much uh, neurosyphilis. You know, certainly some of the other things with autonomic dysfunction and now whether he's got like dysphagia, uh, other sort of progressive neurogenitive diseases, you know, certainly come to mind and we don't have a full neurological exam and it's not really fitting per se, something like Parkinson's or a Lewy body dementia or things in that domain. But, you know, I think um, certainly have to be on the broader differential. I think something like Wilson's disease certainly is still on the differential for me. We, we haven't heard of, you know, we don't really have a sense of what his hepatic function is or any signs or symptoms of liver disease, but we're also not getting that data. So I think it's really amazing when you don't have all of the information uh, that you need in order to make the correct diagnosis or to even come up with a cohesive differential, you separate your differentials into different categories into what if one situation were true, if this were a chronic disease versus what if a different situation were true. And I really thought the way that you did that was really, really awesome. Uh, another thing, Wilson's disease. Uh, admittedly, I did not think of Wilson's disease while preparing for this case, so I'm, I'm looking it up right now. And Wilson's disease was actually described in 1912 okay. by, a, by a British physician, Samuel Wilson, a neurologist. So just take that into account when you're uh, considering your final diagnosis. <laughs> that it did not exist in 1849. <laughs> well, it did exist. It, it just did, wasn't it described. I just may not have yet. known what it was. Uh, Dr. Oshinsky, any, any comments from this physical exam? Yeah, uh, just a couple. If you look at the records of public hospitals and what are also called dispensaries in this uh, era, a dispensary would be a place where if you didn't have a very serious injury, but you were ill uh, in some way, generally your employer would pay for you to go to a dispensary. But when you look at the records of these places, what you generally see are people come in for accidents, they come in for delirium tremens, and they also come in, most of all, for respiratory distress. And that is the one thing I found lacking in the diagnosis. It was so common at this particular time, and yet there seems to be no hint in any of the medical diagnoses of this time that involved that and went along with alcoholism, went along with virtually everything. And that, I, I think, is to me one of the more surprising what is lacking in the diagnosis. Great. So let's move on to our next aliquot. So on hospital day one, the patient was tremulous. He was constantly talking and had vacant conversations with spectral and imaginary objects on the wall. On hospital day two, he was visibly agitated. He was described as talking like a man insane, perfectly self-possessed in all other aspects. 
His brain and tongue were evidently beyond his control. It is reported that the patient poetically said, Lord, help my soul, before he expired. The official cause of his death was congestion of the brain. Being a well-known literary figure, he had previously written about dying. He once described the afterlife as where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest. One should note he was well known for his macabre literary style. The next aliquot will reveal the answer. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. So Dr. Shea, give us some more of your thoughts. So I keep on going back to the initial thought process that maybe this is, I mean, granted, maybe he's got some chronic manifestations of his alcohol use, but this is all related to an acute withdrawal syndrome and, and delirium tremens. You know, sometimes when it's the first things that come to mind, you try to convince yourself, okay, it needs to, it's something else. Like, and again, sort of, you know, checking and slowing down and sort of doing a check on that fast thinking. But certainly things that fit with that diagnosis. I mean, we're hearing him having evidence of hallucinations, tremulousness, agitation. So really kind of wanting to kind of pause and take a step back. And just the rapid progression of this makes me think that maybe some of the historical things are part of the chronic disease process. And now this is something maybe more acute just because of his rapid decline and progression. And this was really happening over his decompensation here over two days. And his delirium started, I think it was a week ago. I mean, granted, I, we never got exactly when his last drink was, but assuming it fits in the, in the time course of things. I have to say, I would have to refresh my memory on mercury poisoning because that certainly is still like, it's not something I think of all the time. Why and not? That is, I know, right? Because I see it all the time. Um, and, but that's how we constantly learn, right? Like, that is certainly a knowledge gap of mine. I don't have a very solid illness script for mercury poisoning. I just don't have enough knowledge right now about that disease entity to kind of solidly say it is or is not. And, you know, just thinking about a broader differential of clearly this seems like delirium and hallucinations. And you think that is the core problem with some of his potential autonomic dysfunction, which would fit delirium tremens. But I think, you know, I would take a step back and kind of look again at my diagnostic schema for delirium and sort of broaden out to make sure I'm not missing anything here. And so, right, we talked about toxidromes, infections, neurodegenerative we talked about electrolyte deficiencies related to cholera, certain like thiamine deficiencies and like a Wernicke's. 
this isn't really fitting the sort of classic presentation of Wernicke's. I mean, granted, we're not getting a full, I don't know what his gait is or his, his ocular exam is, although granted, you do not have to have the classic triad there, but that is certainly something that would be on the differential. We haven't heard that he's having active diarrheal symptoms, but that certainly would also be something that's still on the differential in terms of metabolic causes. Other things we haven't mentioned in metabolic causes, like thyroid dysfunction as well in this autonomic dysfunction. But again, I can't really fit all these symptoms into thyroid disease. I'm going to pause there. <laughs> might, might have more to add to that, but I'm going to pause there. <laughs> well, and I think it's, you know, it, it's appropriate that one of the things you said was, you know, we haven't concentrated a lot on infections. But and at the time, it would have been difficult to recognize a lot of the infections that we that we know of now. Dr. Oshinsky, before uh, kind of give away who this is and, and talk about what we think the diagnosis may have been, any any further thoughts that you'd yeah, like well, to add? I, I think um, I, I will let you uh, reveal the name. I think I figured it out uh, from uh, your, your description as a writer and, 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 and his words. Uh, what I will say is that you have a person with a long history of alcoholism. He was probably badly beaten before he died. He was left in harsh weather, basically alone in, uh, with, with no attempt to take care of him. And the one thing you also have to understand is that in this era, he was not considered a young man. I mean, the, uh, the lifespan in, in this time was, was quite a bit shorter. So when you hit his age, you were already entering the danger zone, particularly someone with a history that we have defined here today. Dr. Shea, any thoughts as to who this, this person may be? Uh, I have to say, I, I do not know in terms of uh, historically. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> So our patient is the infamous Edgar Allan Poe, and while, while, we may not, and while we may not know exactly what he died from, and we're going to talk a, a little bit about it, a differential diagnosis includes delirium tremens, rabies, and mercury poisoning being some of the top diagnoses. So the way I want to continue our discussion is, is first to talk a little bit about Edgar Allan Poe, and then to move on, and maybe we could all almost hypothesize what we think Edgar Allan Poe may have died from, because I think it is definitely up for debate. So, Dr. Oshinsky, you've been eager to talk about Edgar Allan Poe. Well, Let's no, hear it. <laughs> uh, what I mean, one of the things I, I, I did want to talk about is that um, when you look at his life, one of the things I found in my own research was that when Edgar Allan Poe lived in New York City, <clears throat> he was a regular visitor to these dispensaries. In other words, this was not someone who, in a relatively short period of time, um, had serious medical issues. And a lot of the medical issues he had at these dispensaries were respiratory issues, which were very, very common at this time. When I look and you put together calomel, mercury poisoning, uh, the possibility of cholera, extremely hard drinking, the fact that he was terrorized in the last days of his life and literally left for dead, we're never going to get the perfect diagnosis here. But there really is a life curve to the medical experiences of this particular individual that I think are very common to the era in which he lived. Yeah, and, and I think that leads us right into an opportunity to talk about what we think the diagnosis for, for Edgar Allan Poe could have been. I think one of the things I do when I'm with my residents and we're talking about a complicated case that we don't know the diagnosis for, we, I, I ask them to give one thing for and one thing against. So. Um, I'm going to open it up to the rest of our group um, as far as what they think may be going on here. You can't be wrong. 
which is which is great. So because we don't know the actual answer, but <laughs> that's exactly right. All right, John, give us some thoughts. I don't know. It's I, I think an exercise like this is always a mirror. You look into the case and you see what you want to see. I like infections. I would argue that they were very common that era. It was something that was very I don't know the the fact the description of of hydrophobia and the autonomic instability that seemed to be indicated by the chaotic pulse. I I read the case and I wanted it to be rabies. I very much wanted it to be rabies. I would say that there are some findings, you know, in the case that are characteristic of that diagnosis. I think the major problem or one of the major problems with that diagnosis is any infection, you've got to consider the host, the environment and the pathogen. And there doesn't seem to be anything special about this person as far as I know or what you described and what he was doing that would bring him into contact with that particular agent. I mean, I could contrive something, of course. Um, he was left for dead and then a dog came over and bit him or something like that. But, but it, it seems that seems forced. And if there's one thing that I've learned being next to Cindy, it's experts think a lot about who the patient is. They don't try to focus in on the disease and make things fit. That's a recipe for disaster. And I would argue, particularly in cases like this, where descriptions of the disease may be, I think, inaccurate or imprecise, or maybe even influenced by the thoughts of a prejudiced uh, provider. And that, you know, that lets me kind of talk a little bit more about rabies for a second, which I think is a really interesting diagnosis here. Most of the time when patients have rabies, there's no identifiable cause to it. Most of the times in throughout the world, it's caused by dogs, the thought is, a dog bite. The historical perspective here is that the vaccine was actually developed by uh, Luis Pasteur about 25 years after this. But still, rabies is a big problem throughout the world. About 40 to 70,000 people die of rabies each year in, in the world. Dr. Shea, you, you've, you've given us a great differential diagnosis and, and all of your thought processes. Is there a diagnosis that you want to, to land on here for, for Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah, I mean, again, as I was mentioning before, I feel like my knowledge gaps from mercury poisoning limits me from committing to that diagnosis. And so my next step there would be to read more about mercury poisoning, you know, as we as I was talking through my thought process. So it's it's hard to commit to that one versus the the diagnoses of rabies and delirium tremens, which I have a illness script for. And so I'm a more able to kind of say what's going for or not. And I think, you know, absolutely, you know, I agree with John and his comments saying certainly when I heard the initial part of the physical exam, it was like, rape, this is rabies, this is rabies, this is rabies. <laughs> um, some of the progression of the symptoms afterwards, maybe not. And so that made me lean more towards delirium tremens between those two diagnoses, again, over rabies for those, those reasons. Although the way that you wrote the case makes it very clear that this case uh, predates modern understanding of medicine, yes. which really, I think, makes you wonder, like, if we talk, you know, on our show about how hypotheses drive data collection. On the one hand, I'm thinking, wow, why can't my residents write descriptions of patients like this? I want my patients to be described in those terms. I don't want to hear about cleared <laughs> Tell me that the patient cannot control his tongue or his mind. And at the same time, one wonders what value this information actually is when it comes from somebody who doesn't understand how disease actually works and who doesn't know all the diseases that actually rightly belong on the differential. Is what you're doing actually a CPC or is it more akin to what you do as like a teaching attending, attempting to gather information of dubious reliability and precision and turn it into something useful? It really struck me that a lot of what you're doing actually is you're struggling to define and constrain the problem. 
And I, I think that's an excellent point, right, in terms of sources of diagnostic error. Certainly data gathering itself is, a, you know, potentially if you don't if you have the data that you're working with, you can only generate what you can from it. And, you know, absolutely certain data that you would expect to have taking care of a patient now is, is not here, which creates a challenge. For absolutely. Sure. Uh, we're using a lot of data here to discuss Edgar Allan Poe, but we always have to question into whether that data is actually accurate within itself. And I was wondering, Dr. Oshinsky, if you could comment on that. Well, when you look at kind of diagnoses of patients in hospitals or in dispensaries at this time, they do tend to be often very, very general. And they'll just have large categories like influenza. And they will just put enormous numbers of people into that category if it's simply a fever. Sometimes coughing, particularly if you're an alcoholic, um, coughing is so common that it might not even arise in the diagnoses. So it is very possible, in, in my mind, someone who had severe health problems, went through a traumatic experience, was sort of left out on the street. I mean, you can talk about anything. You know, could it be cholera? Could it be alcoholism, which was a part? Could it be people who just saw something like influenza as so absolutely common and that he may have had two or three of the symptoms, but not the major symptoms, that that is what they're going to say it was? And it's very likely that it was. I mean, there were enormous influenza epidemics up and down the East Coast at this particular time. And someone in his weakened condition, uh, I think, would be a, a very strong candidate for that. And, and when I think of the diagnosis for this case, for me, it's based on his history and his symptoms and, and just the frequency of seeing alcohol use and, and delirium tremens. For me, that was the diagnosis that stuck out the most. But again, questioning the historiography of this, you know, I know that the day after he was buried, there was an obituary written about him by one of his rivals that really panned him a little bit for, for all of his drinking and his, his lack of temperance. Uh, and I always wonder if that was used against him in, in, in reflection of that and if thinking that, you know, maybe a lot was made of his alcohol use after the fact instead of it actually being a real thing. It's and possible. It's, 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 it's impossible I mean, there's, to there's, say. There's just no way to know. Absolutely. Has anyone made an attempt to actually figure out the cause? Like, exhumed him or what have you? Like, who decides when these historical CPCs are worth, uh, are worth, no one's, no one's tried. Huh? I don't think so. And Maybe this will create the movement. <laughs> is there a consensus thing? Have you, have you seen the death certificate? So there is no death certificate. Okay. Someone has looked for it and has been unable to find it. It was assumed destroyed at some point. So when you say brain congestion, presumably that a pathologist did an autopsy, do we need to slow know that, that there was cerebral edema? I think that that was just a word that they used. That's how I interpret that, like, too. Yeah, like, I, inter yeah, I interpret right, that because, as just like, he was delirious. Because <laughs> Val Valentine <laughs> Mott said that about him previously, exactly. that he had brain congestion, and that was his issue. So then later when they say he died of brain congestion, that was just the words that they used for that. Well, uh, I want to thank Dr. Shea and, and uh, Dr. Oshinsky for participating in this historical hoofbeats. Uh, additionally, thanks to Sydney and John for allowing for an exciting experiment and uh, reviewing a historical case. So finally, what better way to end a podcast about the eerie death of Edgar Allan Poe than with a poem? Here's a story, somewhat eerie, of a long-forgotten theory of the death of the poet who was known for tales of gore. He left for Richmond, strong and strapping, for the girl he was entrapping. 
With the ring she'd be unwrapping, slapping on forevermore. Will you marry me, he uttered, yapping his words of a more. She agreed to, yes, she swore. What came next, well, it's uncertain, for on that train he did divert. Instead of back home to New York, he wound up in Baltimore. They say he went there for a meeting, but his time there it was fleeting, for soon he was found bleeding outside a bar down on the floor. Clearly he needed treating. His mental state was quite unsure. Folks thought he's drunk and nothing more. But one man who then did pass wrote a doctor named Snodgrass, telling of Poe's state a sight too sorry to ignore. His faculties waxed and waned, and his swallowing seemed pained. His odd clothes could not be explained, an unkempt, vestless shirt he wore. And the doctors ascertained that Poe's delusions would endure. And for the end, Poe did implore. It's the best H&P that I've ever read. <laughs> Time spent with patience. <laughs> 30 minutes. You have to re-record that to get, the, get, the, get a little bit of the, the, the flow. The more I think about it, the more I suspect David's real agenda here was to recite poetry on air. In any case, that should about do it for us today. Once again, thank you to our discussants, Faraday Shea and David Oshinsky, and to David Kudlowitz for conceiving of and developing this episode of Hoofbeats. Special thanks to all those who gave input on this episode, uh, including Clem Lee, Alexis Fain, Irene Swanenberg, Ryan Chippendale, Aaron Troy, and Lauren Kewick, along with audio editor Solon Kelleher. And to our core IM colleagues, Amy O, oh, Shreya Trivedi, Harit Shah, and Marty Freed. And an honorable mention as always to Dr. Stephen Liu. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining us with Core IM. I'm Cindy Fain, still an NYU hospitalist. And I'm John Huang, Bellevue and NYU. See you next time. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.